morning, Village Church. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together in this place together. Some of you guys were with us together at the beach last night. We had a little event called Salt Creek Saturday, watched the sun go down, and it was like a good reminder. Like, this is why we pay so much to live here, right? Summer is like we make up for everything in the summer. Summer is our time. It's our Super Bowl, and we win in the summer, okay? And so this is it. But it was fun to be together with uh, many of you. And we are, as Jan said, in week two of a summer series called We Are His. We're going through the Village Church's vision and values. And we're opening up God's word each week to see how these come from scripture. And see why it is that we believe what we believe. And all of this flows out of the reality that we belong to God. That we are the adopted children of God. We've been bought by the death of Jesus Christ. And we've been redeemed. We're a people who have nothing to earn. We're a people who have every reason for hope. And so we delight in the reality that we belong to God. We delight as his people that we're his. And it's simply because God chose to take us in. And then out of that belonging and out of the reality that we're adopted by God, we get to open up scripture and see the calling, the purpose that God has for us, right? And here's our full vision statement. We'll, we'll put this up every week, of course, all summer. Village Church exists to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples who are delighting in Jesus, declaring the good news about Jesus, and displaying the life of Jesus because every village needs Jesus. And today, in particular, we're going to look at this idea that because we belong to God, we glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples. Now, the church, as God's people around the world, does many things to glorify God. And the local church, including this church, we do many things to glorify God. And, and Paul seemed to think that, that you could do a whole lot of things to glorify God. We go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Last night, we were at the beach with many of you. We probably had like 80 people or so. And... I took a photo of, you know, some of us hanging out. That's pretty nice. Okay, that's worth it. That's good. We were talking to the glory of God. We were fellowshipping for the glory of God. We were eating Chipotle burritos for the glory of God. And then this morning, I woke up, and I discovered that our wonderful youth group is keeping my house. <clears throat> and God was not glorified in this. <laughs> And I heard them laughing, and yet God was not glorified in that laughter. <laughs> and I remember doing this to my, my youth pastors and my pastors, and, 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 and I loved it, and we had a great time. And, and God must have not been glorified looking back then. Now that I am older and wiser, I can tell you that I was wrong. <laughs> and you are wrong. <laughs> We're going to do a sermon too. <laughs> so scripture tells us that we live our lives in worship and gratitude, that all of life can bring glory to God. But there's also a primary calling that's given to the church, and that is the great commission to grow and multiply disciples, helping people to know Christ and to become more like Christ. The primary calling, the primary way that we bring glory to God is, is not optional for God's people. It's not like, okay, well, I'm a Christian, so I do the normal things, the normal check boxes. I'm a church guy. Go to church, 
I do the fellowship thing. I do the free food thing. Anytime there's free food, I mean, prices are sky high, so I take advantage of that. But growing and multiplying disciples, that's an extra box that you can opt into if you want to be part of that whole, that whole thing, that whole deal. This morning we're in Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 24. Paul's writing a letter to the Colossian church, and we're going to see that Paul teaches us a lot in this passage about the joys and the struggles, but ultimately about the eternal importance of growing and multiplying disciples. So we're going to break this down, simple passage this morning, and uh, I'm excited for it, right? Look at verse 24. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh... I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, hope of glory. We saw for many months as we were studying the book of Acts that we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and we look at his actions. And now we look at this letter to the Colossians and we see and we learn a lot by looking at the Apostle Paul's words. Paul says this is true and we know that he lived a life that affirmed this. And I think it's really simple. It's something like this, right? This is what he says. Ministers of the gospel suffering for the sake of Christ, making known the mystery that God has now revealed. The first thing we see really clear from, from Paul is that growing and multiplying disciples will be a struggle. It will be a struggle. And we see this all throughout Scripture that, that suffering is acknowledged, and yet suffering is, is accepted by God's people. It's not dismissed, but it is put in its rightful place. The realities of the gospel have an organizational sense. They take the priorities of our life and they rank them properly according to eternal things. And so suffering is never dismissed, it's never minimized, but it is embraced by God's people for the greater glory of God. Right? It's not like your little league coaches that tell you when you get hurt, you're fine. Wipe it off, you're, you're good. You get hit by a pitch. Many of you know the legendary scene, the greatest scene in the history of, of cinema, really, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when he faces the Black Knight. <laughs> and he chops his arm off, and he says, tis but a scratch, right? And so he chops his other arm off, and he says, it is but a flesh wound. And then he chops off both of his legs, and he's sitting there on the ground, no arms, no legs, and he says, all right, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> The Bible isn't asking us to pretend that we don't struggle. But in the Bible, suffering is put in its rightful place. It is real. It is painful. God sees it. God cares. God's heart breaks that his children suffer at the hands of sin, both their own sin and the sin of this world. And yet, we see places like Philippians chapter 3, where it says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so suffering is not dismissed, but it's not a reason to turn back. It's not a reason to give up on the command that we've received to grow and multiply disciples. Because God is that good. Right? 
I wrote this down. <laughs> it's just my words, but we're going to throw it up here. God receives great glory when his children are willing to persevere through trials for the sake of growing and multiplying disciples for the kingdom and its king that they love, right? And without that last part, I mean, you could, you could call us all sorts of religions without that last part, right? But we love this God, right? The struggles that we face, the sacrifices that we make, it causes the world to say, how could this be worth it for those people? How could it be worth it? And the answer for us is because heaven is real, because hell is real, because all of the desires of our hearts are fulfilled in Christ, and our hearts want to experience what God has for us and want that for others, right? The struggle declares to the world how good the good news really is. And we face a time right now where Christians have stopped using heaven and hell in their arguments for why people should follow Jesus. It's like there's a sort of cultural pressure to think, well, isn't that manipulative to tell someone that they will go to hell if they don't believe in this God? I think the answer is, of course, of course it's manipulative if we're wrong, right? But what if it's the truth? What if these things are real? I did a Twitter search for you this week. That took a lot for me. And let me just say, if you're not on Twitter, I highly recommend it. It's a very friendly, relaxed environment <laughs> where people just calmly share their thoughts and ideas and then respectfully give their counter arguments. And there's wisdom and eloquence. Sometimes I don't know if I'm on my Twitter feed or I'm in ancient Greeks, right? <clears throat> but I searched the phrase, this is heaven. And here's the most recent ones I found. There was a photo of some strawberries with the caption, these strawberries are so sweet. This is heaven. There was a photo of an NHL hockey rink with the caption, two of my favorite players in one photo. This is heaven. There was a video of someone petting a cat with the caption, I went to a cat cafe. This is heaven. <laughs> and there was a photo of a stack of cookies with the caption, my mom made a jar of cookies. This is heaven. Now, I hope this isn't controversial this morning, but we should clarify, none of those things are heaven. <laughs> Heaven is heaven, okay? And hell is hell. And the Bible tells us a lot about both heaven and hell. And more and more, the world and even the Christian church has willfully chosen to ignore it, to dismiss it, and particularly to redefine it. Hell is no longer a place of eternal suffering as consequence for sin. Hell is now the daily struggle of facing my fears and my doubts. And hell is not believing in myself. And heaven is no longer the place where we get to dwell with God, our creator. Heaven is the little spark of beauty and goodness in all of us. And so you go on a two-day yoga retreat and you sit in a circle and you do stretches that you could have done at home for free. And the instructor says, Heaven is the little spark of beauty and goodness in all of us. And then they charge your credit card $900. <laughs> and it turns out that the real spark of life was just capitalism, right? And so more than any time in American history, we have a population that is living under the total rejection of any reality other than their own. Right? 
And what is Paul's solution to this? Look at the next verse, verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's very simple. We proclaim, we warn, we teach. The world is desperate for faithful Christians who will devote their lives to proclaiming, to warning, to teaching. Many of you in this room, myself included, have had your lives shaped by older believers who opened up their homes and poured into your life, proclaiming, warning, teaching, proclaimed truth to you, warned you of many dangers, taught you what is true, taught you what is reality. Where would we be without faithful believers who said, I want to invest in growing and multiplying disciples for the glory of God. People who decided to invest in not just our sports careers or our academic successes, but people who said, I want to invest in their soul and their heart. I'm going to invest in shaping their mind. Where would I be without faithful believers who said, I want David Hughes to be ready for the attacks that will come on his faith when he's older. If you close your eyes right now and you picture every time you were walking into a home for a community group or a Bible study or a prayer gathering, just think about that was somebody who made a decision that this was worth it. (laughs) It's not easy to do that. Now that I have three young kids, I realize that like, Having, like, some of the things that these people did for me, opening up their home for me, getting all their kids organized and brushing their teeth and getting them to beds just so they can bring a bunch of teenagers in their house and open up Bibles and pray together, even though we fall asleep during prayer, right? (laughs) That's a lot of work. I have three young kids now. I realize getting three young kids to bed, it's like evacuating Vietnam or something, right? And you're like, find myself thinking of all the people who went through this work to open up their homes so they can bring me and my little ragtag seventh grade best friends and open up Bibles. And they didn't have to do it, right? When the pastor said, we need youth leaders to lead Bible studies this year, they could have said, are you kidding me? I got my own kids in my house. I'm working a lot of hours right now. Maybe next year, right? If you go back to the final departing words of Jesus Christ, we see the foundation of our mission, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Let's read it. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here in Colossians chapter 1, we see beneath the surface of that calling, right? Jesus gives us this big, grand calling, this big vision to grow and multiply disciples. And then we look here in Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and we see the grind day after day, the struggle. We proclaim, we warn everyone, we teach everyone with wisdom. We toil and struggle with the energy that God has given us, right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, puts the fire in our hearts. And the words of Paul in Colossians 1 and 2 are the picture of this unfolding day after day and walking the path of growing and multiplying 
disciples with all the struggle and toil. And this is for all of God's people. Not just those who are called to frontier mission, right? It's not like you say, okay, God, I am now ready to fulfill my portion of the Great Commission. I have scheduled it into my calendar. I've set aside one week of Great Commission work. Step one, find an island with an unreached tribe. If they are cannibals, that's a bonus, right? <laughs> They've never heard the gospel. They've never seen an automobile. They've never heard Michael Buble's Christmas album, right? Lost people, very lost. It's a dark place. And then I make my plan and I schedule it on my calendar and I will follow the Great Commission. This is the day I get on a plane to begin doing the Great Commission. Maybe you will be in frontier missions. Maybe this will be your story. Likely it won't, but regardless, the Great Commission isn't something you're going to schedule on your calendar for a window of time. It is your life. It is my life. We are a people who grow and multiply disciples until we see God. Amen? We are shepherds until the day we see our shepherd. Very simple. Keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. That means that they're not anywhere else. <laughs> it's pretty simple. And this is why we struggle, that the world might know that this is true. And that the world might be filled with incredible joy in this, right? The Great Com Commission is fueled by our love for lost people. And it's fueled by our love for the God who saved us. Look again, verse 2. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. I think we should just say that believing that statement is a requirement for a Christian leader. If you don't believe what Paul says in verse 3, you have no business being a leader in the church. You're going to mess it up, right? You have no business being a mentor or discipler of Christ. You'll only lead people to yourself and your wisdom and your experiences and your truth. We can only lead people to our own shallow understanding. God's called us to something better. He's called us to lead them to Christ where we find all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom, all of the riches. My mind has, has thought about this. It brought to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a very famous chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. But how does he end that section? By saying that everything we do now is imperfect. Our knowledge is imperfect. Look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, not in me. So the greatness of my life will be measured 
by my faithfulness to point people to Christ, not to point them to myself and all the things I know and all the things I've learned. Growing and multiplying disciples means that we lead people to the fountain of God, to his wisdom, to his beauty, to his knowledge. Again, verses two and three. I need to know the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the answer is follow me as I follow Christ. It's the model of Paul. And we're only ministers of the gospel so much as we lead people to God, right? Look at verse four, he keeps going. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This morning is a special morning and uh, it's something we get to do once a year. We have the privilege of honoring our graduating class of the Village Academy apprentice class. And these men and women have dedicated the last nine months to studying systematic theology, spiritual disciplines, and Christian leadership. And I was thinking this week, we're not a church who's trying to cram our minds with truth for nine months so we can send our apprentice graduates off to a regional theology nerd trivia competition, right? <laughs> but I guess if that's a real thing, uh, we would like to win. And uh, <laughs> I was just, this is side, but I, I feel like we could fit some sort of trophy shelves in the walls. Um, it would probably be an elder vote, but here's a recap of our passage this morning, okay? Paul is willing to struggle so that they can reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery so that no one will be deluded with plausible arguments. So that no one will be led astray by the arguments of this world that are convincing. And so what we see from Paul here is that discipleship is defense. Discipleship is defense. It is training the mind not to be led astray. And I believe discipleship is humility. Because when we believe that we need discipleship, when we believe that we need the knowledge and wisdom of Christ, I think what we're saying is, hey, hold on a second. Call me crazy, but is it possible that Satan is actually really good at what he does? Like he's been, he's been at this a while. When it comes to preparing for the spiritual battle of the mind, <laughs> Christians don't always take it very seriously. We don't take Satan very seriously. We don't take the lies of this world very seriously and how alluring they are and how easy it is to love money and how easy it is for us to love the things of this world and how quick it is to look at every difficult thing in our life and think, oh, that would be solved with just like more money, more something. When it comes to preparing for the spiritual battle of the mind, most Christians approach this with all of the confidence of a toddler wanting to help hang the Christmas lights at Christmas time in the house. You say, I can do that, Dad. I'm fine. 
I can go up that ladder, hang the lights. And that's when you climb down the ladder and you look at your little two-year-old girl in the face and you say very gently, my child, your pride will kill you. <laughs> the Bible says Satan is the father of lies. That's quite a title. You ever been called the father of something? <laughs> no. We might want to take that a little more seriously. Did we think he was an amateur liar? Or maybe possibly, hear me out, he's a very, very good liar. Think about how many great Christian men and women have fallen deep into the snares of the devil. You climb down that ladder, you look that little kid in the eyes and you say, my child, your pride will kill you. <laughs> when it comes to discipleship, our pride can kill us. The idea that discipleship is an act of humility. I think it's really similar to the idea that prayer is an act of humility. Prayer is, <laughs> prayer is the recognition that I'm not in control, that I'm not capable of solving every problem, that I need God. I need his wisdom. I need his, his fellowship. I need his strength. When I don't pray, when I go through day after day, thinking I can do my job, raise my kids, lead my family, be a good husband without prayer. That's a statement. It's not a statement about how busy I am or how important my life is or how competent I am at getting things done. Prayerlessness is only a statement about my pride. Because a life of prayer is a declaration that I need God. And a life committed to discipleship is a declaration that I need God. That all of the fullness of wisdom and knowledge is not in me. But I know where to find it. And I know that I need it. I need more time with God. I need more of the truth of God. Because I am prone to wander. I am weak. Satan wants me destroyed. He wants my family destroyed. And God says, that's right. And you do need to know that. But even more, you need to know that I will give you everything you need. You come to me. Amen? Yeah. Almost through. Look at verse 6. Paul continues here. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. You open up the pages of scripture, and over and over you see things like see to it, watch out, be careful, take care, guard yourself, train up, right? It's like God is saying, I don't know how else to say this for you, but there's a war out there, right? That's what this language says to us. Train up, guard, see to it, take care of your heart, watch yourself. There's a war out there, and the false gospels are tempting. They're alluring. There's a sliver in there that feels right. As I was preparing this week, I was thinking about these ideas, and I think it's important for us to understand that the world is pulling us away 
from Christ in many ways. We're seeing that in our culture. It's pulling us in specific directions, and I think culture is grabbing hold of specific life. This week I was thinking about these ideas, and I couldn't help but think of a really magical place, and I like to share these things, especially with our youth group kids in here. They just need to know about just some of the finer things in life, and so I was thinking about the Sizzler, <laughs> and <laughs> it's one of their better locations. Some of you maybe are young, and you haven't experienced it yet. Not, it's hard to describe, really. <laughs> you know, like Joseph Smith taught that the Garden of Eden was in America. <laughs> this is about as close as you can get if he was right, okay? Can we all confirm that? No? Nobody, nobody asked you. Just this is the worst illustration I've ever come up with, but I think you should follow me. You send a bunch of kids into a buffet with hundreds of options. The kids do not spread out evenly. There is a gravitational pull towards a few key areas, right? The pizza, the cookies, the ice cream machine. It's not like some kids are heading for the ice cream machine and others are forming a line behind the sliced olive, right? There's a gravitational pull towards certain things. It's going to be a long time before they have to replace the carpet in front of the, the, the carrot slices, the shreds that are laying in, in a bowl in some ice, right? What is the gravitational pull that is away from biblical Christianity today? The majority of our culture has long departed from the idea that we exist to glorify God, which we are saying in this room, that is our foundational idea. We exist to glorify God. And the majority of our culture has departed from that. Did they go from that and spread out evenly? Is everyone just choosing a new religion? And all the other religions are seeing, you know, little gradual increases. No, statistically, no. Is atheism on the rise in America? Statistically, no. The gravitational pull, the gathering of the people who have left the idea that we exist to glorify God, they are gathering around a particular idea, and it's a twisted version of Christianity where we see God as a strategic tool for our own plans, right? More and more professing Christians do not surrender their purpose to God, but they want to use God to fulfill their own purposes and their desires, right? We exist to glorify God. That is our foundation. We are united in this as village partners, right? What is going to be the gravitational pull on our hearts away from this way of living? It's probably not going to be atheism. It's probably not going to be Satan worship, right? I don't think their numbers are skyrocketing either. It's probably just going to be God exists to serve me. So we grow and multiply disciples for the glory of God day by day until we see God face to face. The alternative that the world is offering, that the world is, is alluring God's people with, is that I view God as a tool on the shelf to fix areas of my life, to keep my plans on track. And when everything is going well, then I put God back on the shelf. I think that means something for us. I think it means that the Great Commission will not flow out of my life 
unless I believe that God is the center of the universe, not me, right? Simple. And so I would just say, it's really good that we're not the center of the universe. You can take a deep breath, you know? God is a much better God than me. He's a much better God than you. Praise God that we can love because he first loved us. And we can serve because he first served us. And we bring the word of God into our living rooms and into our kitchen tables and into our kids' bedrooms at night. And we bring it to the ends of the earth because the word of God became flesh for us and died in our place. I thought this morning would be a really cool opportunity. There, um, I haven't done a good job of looking around, but we... Mike and Joni Kane are in town right now visiting from Japan. I don't know if they're sitting back there. Are you guys here? Can you, better? Let me find you. Mike and Joni Kane are here, and I wanted to just share some things. And Mike and Joni Kane have been faithful missionaries in Japan for many years. And it's just really cool God's providence that they get to be here this morning. And he recently sent out a Gospel Coalition article about the church conditions in Japan. And I read it. And it was just really humbling and powerful. He talked about things I had no idea about. The Christian population in South Korea is 30%. In China, it's 5%. The Christian population in Japan is 1%. The article says that Japan has gained a reputation for being known as a missionary graveyard. Because missionaries will labor there for many years without seeing any fruit. I remember one year I was driving back from the men's retreat with, with Mike and just hearing of the toils and the struggles for years just to see somebody open up a Bible and read a passage with them. And they faithfully served the second largest unreached people group in the world for many years. And they've just recently committed to continuing serving in Japan in the future Such a powerful struggle, such a powerful toil. Nobody makes this sacrifice without believing that God really is who he says he is, right? And the world is going to see the glory of Christ as we live lives that are radically unexplainable. And so I just finished this morning with a little good news statement and I think it's just really simple. It's this, because we belong to God, we can glorify God by joyfully growing and multiplying disciples. Amen? Yeah? And so, Village Church, we do this. We do this together. We do this out of joy. We know that God is worth it. Yeah? Would you pray with me? God, we just, as we look at your word this morning, we're just grateful to be yours. I'm grateful that as we think upon all of these incredible things that you've called us to, we get to just know that first and foremost, before any of this, before any command, we just simply get to be something totally new. We get to be your children. And that's our joy. And God, in a world that is pulled in many, many places and pulled 
away from the truth of the gospel. I'm just really grateful that I get to be in a room full of people who believe what is true and who know that you are good. God, may we be a church who loves to grow and multiply disciples. Not for our glory, but for your glory. And may we be a church who gets to see much, much fruit. God, this morning we pray for Mike and Joni King and the work that they have set out to do in Japan. And the struggle and the toil and the days and the months and the years. God, may you bring revival, may you bring the gospel to those people. God, we delight in you as our joy to make disciples. It is our joy to be shepherds who lead people to the great shepherd, and we cannot wait to see you one day. Amen.